section. That brings us to the second major section. And remember, we talked about in the structure, the first third is divided into two sections, the, the birth announcements and births of John and Jesus, and then there's Galilee mystery where we learn about him. And then that leads us to the second section, which is his journey towards Jerusalem, where he's going to die, and then the third and final section where he actually dies. Jesus goes to Jerusalem in order to suffer and die. So now he's going to start heading south towards Jerusalem. This division records Jesus' ministry activity as he makes his way to Jerusalem in order to die. He had just declared in Luke 9, 21 through 22 and 44, everything from Luke 9 on is on his way to the cross to die. The kingdom is not coming with the conquest of Rome, but the death of the Lamb. Luke emphasizes this idea with the use of the word to journey used four times in Luke chapter 9, 51 through 56, to journey to journey. Luke moves on from developing Jesus' identity and nature of his mission to developing four other major ideas. First, the coming of salvation in all of its fullness to all people. Second, the expectation that Mary's son would be the cause of division in Israel. And third, that Jesus must suffer rejection and be killed. And fourth, Jesus' exodus. Now you can see the chiastic parallelism here on this entire section. And everything leads to chapter 13. Kill Jerusalem, Jerusalem kill. There's a mirrorism here there. That this is the ultimate focus. Is to be killed in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem he will be killed. So the first section in this division is the disciples on hearing and doing the word of God. Chapter 9, verse 51 through 10, 24. In this section, Jesus first announces that he must go to Jerusalem in order to die. It is at this point he begins to make clear what the true discipleship means and to send the twelve out to proclaim the kingdom of Yahweh. Those who will share in the kingdom of Yahweh are those whose lives are determined by the message of Jesus. So verse 51, chapter 9. Now when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set out resolutely to go to Jerusalem or to set his face towards Jerusalem. Resolutely means determined, committed. He sent messengers on ahead of him as he went along, and they entered a Samaritan village to make things ready and advance for him. But the villagers refused to welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, Jesus is doing something very interesting. You can see this on your maps at the very beginning of my notes. But when you go from Galilee to Jerusalem, you have to go straight through Samaria. Now, remember Samaria, back in the book of Kings, you had Israel and Judah. Israel was the northern kingdom of the ten tribes, and Judah was the southern kingdom. And God sent prophets, and the prophets said, if you keep rebelling and doing all these things, then I will send you into exile. Israel did not listen and repent. Judah did. So the Assyrians came, and they sacked Israel in the north, the ten tribes, and they took them off into exile. And the heart of Israel was a city called Samaria, and Samaria was the capital of the Israel kingdom. So when they got sacked, most of them were killed by the Assyrians. Some of them were allowed to stay behind. And the rest got deported. So then when the Assyrians came in, they divided Israel up into all these districts. And the most major district that they developed was the district of Samaria, based on the capital that was in the center. 
So they brought in all these deported people from other nations that they had conquered, and they let, and including some of the people from Israel that were left behind with their villages and everything now burned to the ground, and they mixed them all up together. And these new people did not know Yahweh, and they did not know God, and so he started to judge them for their sins because this is the promised land. And so Judah sent prophets up to the north in order to witness and prophet, um, teach them the law. But what began to happen is these Jews began to intermarry with all these people from other nations, and they developed this hybrid mutt religion of Judaism mixed with some pagan ideas and views. And so this began to grow. Now, after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the return and all that kind of stuff, they come back and they return to Judah because Judah eventually got taken to exile by the Babylonians. And then they returned in 536 B.C. And they came back to Judah in the south. And the people in Samaria, were they considered themselves Jews, but they weren't totally full-blown Jews. And so they wanted to help build things, but they also weren't completely on board with Judah. So they kind of wanted to be there and kind of didn't want to be there. And then Judah didn't react to that because you're not pure-blooded and we're suspicious of you. And then that began hostilities between these two kind of Jewish, half-Jewish, half-not, and then these Jewish people who are all about pure-blooded Jewishness. And this is the beginning of, if you're a descendant of Abraham, then you're automatically saved kind of a thing. And you're not completely descendants of Abraham, so you're not completely saved. And this is the seedlings of that idea that we see in the Gospels. So over time, this group grew and grew and grew. And eventually they became known as the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, realizing that they weren't allowed in the temple in Jerusalem, they built their own temple. And they then, on Mount Gerizim, and they followed the Torah only. They did not embrace the other books of the Bible. And then what happened is when the um, Maccabean revolt came, began to take a lot of these lands back, they kind of just took all the lands back, but the Samaritans were unchangeable. So the Jews kind of lived in Jerusalem, Judah in the south, and they went around them, crossed the Jordan River, and would go north to Galilee and settle there. So every time you went from Galilee to Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Galilee, you would go across the Jordan River, around them, and come all the way down. So it would be like going on 270, the outer belt, instead of going down 71, the um, most central north-south highway. You never go through Samaritan territory. And Jesus is like going through it because I have come for all people. But the Samaritans want to reject them because all they see is a bunch of Jews have been rejecting them first. And so they can't even hear Jesus' ministry in the beginning right off the bat because all they see is a bunch of Jewish men who are jockeying for power and are self-entitled and rejecting Samaritans first because the Jews are the, the self-entitled. And so they begin to reject him. And as it happens, the disciples are, See? Told you. They're heathens. Should we call down fire out of heaven? Now, this is a direct res, um, reference to Second Kings or 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah called down fire in order to punish. Or no, sorry. 2 Kings chapter 2, where Elisha brought down fire on the soldiers that came to come and capture him. And they're like, well, if Elisha punished people who resisted God, and we're now with Jesus, and he's like an Elijah, and Elisha, then we get to do it too, right? And it's like, once again, Jesus is like, did you not get what I'm talking about? I mean, how can you miss all this? Verse 57, 
As they were walking along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have dens, and birds in the sky have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus said to another, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, in some sense, you're like, wow, Jesus, you're really harsh. You can't even say goodbye to your family or bury your dead dad. Like, come on, like, give him at least an hour. Doesn't he have to at least go and pack a bag? But with Jesus, this is not all that's going on. Jesus is really trying to help them understand what true discipleship means. The first guy says, oh, follow you wherever you go. Maybe the guy was dressed with a lot of nice threads and a lot of bling bling around his neck. And Jesus saw this and says, do you really get what you're saying? I'm not like the rabbis who go around in nice clothes and have nice apartments opened up to them and they banquet and dine all the time. I have no home. I have no hotels that are prepared for me in advance. I have no entourage who is bringing me in and announcing me. It comes in Rabbi Bar Kachva. I don't have any of that. I am at the mercy of God just providing the way that he does for the people that he brings in my life. Sometimes I'm in the middle of nowhere putting my head on a rock, and sometimes I'm being invited into somebody's house and have a bed. Do you really understand what following me means? Do you really understand what following me means? I'm not saying you can't follow me. I'm just saying, do you really understand what you're saying here? The next guy says, let me bury my dead father. Well, first, his father's not dead yet. There's no way. First, if his father was dead, this burial would make him unclean because he would be in the process of touching his dead father a lot in order to prepare him for burial and anointing and wrapping him up and burying him, which means he would be unclean. And he would be unclean for a week of cleansing himself. Then he would have to go to the tabernacle or temple and make a sacrifice, and he wouldn't be allowed to be with anybody right now. So he wouldn't be in the crowd with a bunch of people, unclean, in the process of burying his father. If his father had just died, there's no way he would be here because the body has to be prepared in a certain amount of time, according to Jewish laws, and to be taken outside the city. So the minute his father died, he would have to take the body outside the city, which means he automatically becomes unclean because he's touched him. So this is an excuse. So this basically is like Abraham when he says, I'll follow you, God, but I've got to wait for my father Terah to die so I can get his inheritance first, and then I'll follow you. And that's what he's saying. My, my dad might be dying in the next five or ten years because he's really old, and then when that happens, then I'll get his inheritance, and then I'll feel more confident because if I leave now, then maybe my younger brother will get the inheritance first, and that won't be good. And Jesus is like, let the dead bury the dead. Like, I'm about bringing life. And if you're just hanging around for somebody to die so you can get something from them, then let the world take care of the world. And if you're going to come with me, we're about life. And we're about bringing life. I, th- this is about now. The next guy says, let me say goodbye to my family. Now you're like, well, that's a little harsh. Well, no, because there's no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back for it. It's fit for the kingdom of God. So what he basically means is let me get my family in a position where they're good. 
where I've built my family up in such a way that they're comfortable and then I can say goodbye. Let me keep plowing the fields, so to speak. Let me keep working and building things up. Let me get my thing in such a way that I can walk away and I can be comfortable with the fact that it isn't all going to go to pot while I'm on a travel or a business trip for a while because I know everything is like stable and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no. No one puts their hand to the plow and keeps looking back to what they have. Nobody wants an unplowed ground. Nobody thinks, oh, I wish I still had that unplowed ground. I'm about building a kingdom. I'm not, you want to build a, a safety net, a nest egg for your family. I'm about building the kingdom of God and life for people who are dying. And this is what Jesus is saying. Now notice, he didn't say, none of you are allowed to follow me. All he said is, do you really understand what this means? Do you really understand what the commitment is? What Jesus is asking between the deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, and this is absolute, total allegiance. You are to pledge your allegiance to no other than Jesus Christ. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot have any other allegiances in your life. You can be committed to people and other things and institutions. You can serve them. You can be loyal to them. But you cannot pledge your allegiance to them. You cannot make your life about that. That cannot be the highest priority. Chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them. 72, two by two into every town, the place where he himself was about to go. So now the difference is he's sending them out again, but this time he's sending them out in pairs, two by two. They're not on their own anymore. And they're going to prepare for him. So before they kind of went out on their own to experience what it meant to be just them and God doing the mission and ministry of God in places. Now, they're now becoming two witnesses, like the two witnesses that were sent into the promised land in order to find out who was ready to accept Christ, or sorry, God, Rahab, and her family, and Joshua, Joshua chapter 3. Now, Jesus is sending out two witnesses again to go out before him in Samaria to begin to prepare people for the coming of Jesus so that they will be ready to hear Jesus and accept his message. So now we have a very specific preparing them for his coming kind of a mission here, rather than just going out and pronouncing the good news to everyone. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Go, I am sending you out like lambs surrounded by wolves. Do not carry any money bag, a traveler's bag, or sandals, or greet no one on the road. Whenever you enter a house, first say, May peace be on this house. And if peace-loving person is there, your peace will remain on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the same house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the worker deserves his pay. Do not move around from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and the people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in that town and say to them, The kingdom of God has come upon you. But whenever you enter a town and the people do not welcome you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come, and I tell you it will be more bearable for some on the day of Sodom than it was for that town. What Jesus is saying is, you're to go ahead. 
The difference is now, same thing. You're completely trusting God to provide for you all your needs. But this time when you're invited to a house, you stay there. I want you to start putting more roots down. Now you're going in pairs of two, and now you're to put more roots down, and you're to stay with them. And, and don't feel guilty with them taking care of them because you do deserve your pay. Okay, listen, I'm not going to give you a, like, here's your six-figure salary if you come and join me in my ministry and build my kingdom. I'm not going to write down a number that you're going to get. I'm not going to give you a consistent, stable paycheck. But you do deserve to be taken care of. You do deserve to be provided for. And so when people offer you things, don't deny it. Don't resist it. They're doing this because God has led them to do it out of the generosity of their heart in order to provide for you what you deserve it. And when you get in their home, stay there because I want you to start building relationships now. I want you to start preparing them for me. I want you to start explaining things. I want you to start discipling. Now you have seen what the power of God is like. You've gone out and you've done it. You've proclaimed the good news. Now the next step is discipleship and getting them ready for me to come. And then all the other things still apply, the roles that he provided. But then he makes it clear here, when people reject you, then cast the dirt off your feet on them. And we've already seen that. But he goes here and says, verse 12, I tell you that it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then he kicks in to this and says, Woe to you, Chorazin, an Israelite city. Woe to you, Bethsaida, an Israelite city. For the miracles done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, the two most major cities in Phoenicia in the north, a very pagan nation, the very nation Elijah went to with the widow of Zarephan. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon in judgment than on you, In Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? No, you'll be thrown down to Hades. So Jesus makes it very clear, like, if these cities reject you, like Bethsaida and Chorazon have rejected me, then woe to them. It'll be more bearable than that jacked-up evil city of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for these people. This is one of the points that the book of Hebrews is saying. The more that you know about God, and the more you experience of God, the more you taste, the more you experience, the more you have, and then you reject it, then there's a greater judgment for you. Because the more you reject, the more you're going to be held accountable for that rejection. The more ignorant that you are when you reject it, then the less that you're going to be held accountable for it because you didn't know. You can only be punished for what you reject. And Sodom and Gomorrah were jacked up evil, but they knew so little about God compared to you, Bethsaida, who has the scriptures and the prophets and the law, and now Jesus himself among you. And you've rejected me? There's a horrible judgment coming for you. That's scary. That's the tension of the gospel. Because the more you share with them, the more they know, the more they're likely to accept Christ. But then at the same time, when they reject it, the greater the judgment will be. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Jesus makes it very clear that rejecting my image is the same as rejecting me. Then the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Look, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and on the full force of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names stand forever in heaven. When Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven, he's not talking about a past event or a future event. He's not saying, I saw the fall of Satan way back in the time of creation, and, and that's why he's Satan now and no longer this archangel. That does not fit the context. He's not saying, I see Satan falling and being conquered one day in the second coming of Jesus Christ. That doesn't fit the context. It's a metaphor for saying every single time that you cast a demon out, every single time you see somebody from the clutches of the sin, the devil, and the flesh, and bring him into the kingdom of God, Satan is being defeated a little bit more. He is falling more. Another one of his plans falls. It's not a literal fall that he's talking about. It's a metaphor. But then he says this, yes, what you're doing is awesome. And you should be really excited about it. But don't let that deceive you. And do not let that go to your head. Because do not rejoice that incredibly powerful demonic forces submit to you. But rejoice that your name stand written in heaven. The greatest thing that you could celebrate and rejoice in is not your accomplishments, not the amount of people you've run to Christ, not the amount of things that you've defeated, but that you belong to God and you know him. I forget the guy's name. D.A. Carson tells the story of this great missionary. I, I should know this name. I'll find it out for you if you really want to know. But this missionary was this incredible missionary that had done all these things, and now he's on his deathbed, and he was like, not literally like on his deathbed, but he like was getting old and weak and sick, and, and he knew he was getting closer to death, and that was going to be happening in the next year or so. And he could hardly see anymore, and he had been a brilliant reader and a brilliant writer and written all these things and written all these sermons and given all these messages and won all these people and built all these things. And, um, and now he could barely hear, he could barely see, he could barely read, and he was kind of weak and feeble. And this interviewer, this Christian interviewer, came and said, you did all these amazing things and built all these incredible ministries and led all these people and did, wrote all these things. Like, how does it feel now to, to be so trapped here and to be doing so little and not accomplishing anymore and not have all these accomplishments anymore at the end of your life? And without hesitation, he quoted this passage. He said, do not be blessed or rejoice in the fact that they obey you, but that your name is written in the kingdom of God. And all of his accomplishments, he never let it go to his head. Now, I'm not saying he never struggled with it. You're not human unless you struggle. But ultimately, at the end of his life, as an old man, he was not thinking, oh, I can't do these things anymore. Oh, if only he was just thinking, I know God and God knows me. And that's where I'm going. That's ultimately all that matters. This is the point that Jesus is making. On that same occasion, verse 21, Jesus rejoiced and the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. I praise you, God, because you revealed the truths of God to even some of the most simple-minded people and not the ones with all the PhDs. Not that people with PhDs can't get it, 
But no matter how awesome they think they are with all those letters, ultimately even little kids can get this truth. And that's the beauty of the Bible. The Bible is so simplistic that a little child can get it. But it's so complex and deep that you will spend the rest of your life exploring the depths of its mysteries. All things have been given to me by my Father. No one knows the Son, who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son decides to reveal him to. Everything has been given to me. Daniel chapter 7. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Do you understand that what really truly makes you unique and special is not all the amazing things that you are doing, not the fact that you've been chosen and nobody else, but you're just getting to know God in a deeper sense. That you're, anyone who's seen the Father has seen me. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Do you get that you're getting that more than anybody else ever has? The thing you should be rejoicing is that you're so close to the Father right now by being close to me. That's what you're supposed to be rejoicing in. Is where your relationship is with God now, how close you are. We should never be rejoicing in our accomplishments, but in our relationships.